God. So we're going to begin today with a with an opening with an opening story. But before I do that, while this is my home church, I, I am still a guest in the pulpit, so I want to give honor to this congregation and to my pastors, Pastor Gene and Pastor Kelly. Thank you so much for the opportunity to to teach today. Um, so I just I, I greatly value my church family and uh, the opportunity to speak to you from the Word of God. So today, beginning with the with our story, uh, many of us will recognize it. How many of us have heard the story of the Good Samaritan? Amen. The Good Samaritan. That's where we're going to begin today. While traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho, a certain man was ambushed by a band of thieves. Caught completely unaware and unable to adequately defend himself, this man was beaten to the point of death, robbed of all his valuable possessions, and abandoned on the side of the road. It was a busy thoroughfare used by dozens throughout the day. Dazed, confused, and dying, this man assumed he was going to die until he heard the footsteps of an approaching traveler. The wounded man let out his loudest moan, hoping to get the attention of the passerby. He did get his attention, however, the priest, somebody say the priest, who was approaching felt compelled more by his temple responsibilities than he did his moral obligation. The call to serve the people was louder than the call to take care of his neighbor. And as the priest faded into the distance, the man was once again left to wonder how much longer he could maintain consciousness and whether this was really the end. Until he heard more footsteps, the footsteps of someone who sounded in a hurry. Again, he let out his loudest moan, hoping to get the attention of the hurried traveler. The religious Levite, somebody say the religious Levite. This man saw the wounded man and did have thoughts of helping, but he quickly dismissed those thoughts when he realized how late it would make him to his next appointment. His desire for approval clearly outweighed his willingness to show empathy. And as he hurried on past the bloody body, he reassured himself he was doing the right thing. The man's condition was worsening by the minute at this point. His eyes were growing heavy, his breathing was becoming more labored, and his hope for help was all but gone. Then he heard several footsteps, more like hooves, from what he could tell by the rhythm they were making. And then he heard a voice that gave the dying man hope, until he recognized the accent, a Samaritan. He's more likely to finish me off than he is to help me, the man thought. The beast came to a stop and the rider dismounted. As the Samaritan came near, the wounded man lost consciousness having all but given up, assuming he was going to die at the hand of another enemy. But instead, this man did something different. The Samaritan began bandaging his wounds and rearranging the blankets, and and he spread it over his donkey so that the beast could carry the dying man as comfortably as possible. The Samaritan took the man to a nearby inn, a safe and comfortable place for this beaten man to recover. Staying with the injured man through the night, the Samaritan left the next morning, giving enough money for the innkeeper to provide further treatment for the man until he had fully recovered. What an incredible display of love for someone other than himself. Whatever the reasons were that the priest and Levite chose not to get involved, this story reveals that the power of love and compassion We should just have for those who may not be just like us. And so this story begs the question, who is my neighbor? That's what this lawyer was asking. The the lawyer was the individual who asked this question to Jesus, which prompted the parable. The lawyer wanted to know, wanted wanted Jesus to give an answer of who his neighbor was. It's possible that this lawyer maybe had his own sensibilities about who his neighbor was. 
And there's all kinds of different directions that we could go with this story of the Good Samaritan. And I only have a few things that I want to point out today because this story is about love. And if we focus on this alone, uh, we, won't, we won't really get to talk about the full scope of the, of the lesson. But I would posit to you that uh, our neighbor, and this, and this is the answer that the lawyer probably didn't want to hear. But our neighbor is anyone that's near us. Uh, if we think about all the people that are involved in the story, those were all neighbors. The innkeeper, all, all the people that passed, the Levite, the priest, the man that was dying, the Samaritan. Not just the innkeeper, but everyone in the inn. These are all neighbors because they were all involved with one another. And, I, I, you know, I don't really think this is something the lawyer would really want to hear because he was wanting, I think he was probably trying to trick Jesus into saying something that was um, not normal for their day. But um, uh, let's move on. Uh, what are some excuses we use to excuse ourselves from helping our neighbors? And uh, I, wonder, I wonder if any of us today have ever heard the expression, well, they're entitled to their opinion. Has anybody ever heard that expression? Yeah, maybe we've used that before. Well, they're entitled to their opinion. And uh, maybe, maybe this lawyer was in that position where he was entitled to his opinion. But entitlement isn't really a millennial issue. Uh, entitlement isn't really a postmodern issue. Entitlement is really a human issue. You know, entitlement is uh, an issue where we say, well, I'm too busy to help my neighbor or uh, I have too many responsibilities to help my neighbor. And my entitlement says, well, you know, my responsibilities are more important than my neighbor. Or my busy schedule is more important than my neighbor. And so it ends up that my, my, my place of, you know, me is more important than my dying neighbor. You know, and in this case, it was a severe issue. It was a severe problem that my neighbor had. You know, I'm not saying that... You, you know, it's just at any old day, I'm saying this is a need. You know, this is a very dire need that my neighbor had. You know, and so I, and so here, um, their needs, the people that passed by were more important. But there is something that um, I think that we need to also take a look at. And that's the person who was the victim in this situation. Um, here they are laying on the ground, and it's, it's very possible that this person is of Jewish descent. Uh, we see in the story, based on their reaction, that, uh, that that's the case. And if, if that is so, excuse me, if that is so, then this individual would have preferred the priest and the Levite to stop. Because if you're a traveler in, this, in their custom, in this time, day and age, in their, in their time, if, if you were a traveler in a land, you would prefer your brethren to take care of you. Excuse me. So if you see the Levite pass, the dying man would say, Oh, Levite, come, come help me. If you see the priest pass, Oh, there's a priest. Hey, hey, come help me. Come help me, brother. But then when you see the Samaritan pass, it's like, oh, here comes a Samaritan. I'd rather die. Get away. Get away. Don't come near me, Samaritan. You know? And then to, to make matters worse, the Samaritan then takes him to an inn. And in that day, inns were not a place a Jewish person wanted to be. Inns were filled with Samaritans. And, some, and to eat or be around with a Samaritan was equivalent for a, Jewish, for a, a Jew to eating pork which was a taboo, which was no, you just did not do that. And so here, here the, this victim was being saved by a Samaritan, someone who he, did, who he would not have wanted help from and taken to a place he would not have wanted to go. And I just wonder, you know, sometimes we need to receive healing from unexpected places. And, you know... God puts people in our lives to heal us, and it's unexpected. Now, Jesus was addressing a religious attitude, and I'm not saying that we, that we have this, but 
it's in the it's in the it's in the scripture so i feel like i need to point it out and it was the attitude that only the priest or only the levite could minister to the to the dying man and it was only and it was the attitude that only the priest and the levite were worthy to take care of the dying man so here the man was dying and the levite and the priest passed and he really would have wanted their help, but then the Samaritan came by, and he had the healing, but the dying man probably wouldn't have wanted that. You know? And so, and, and so that's, the attitude, uh, that's the attitude I'm talking about right now. You know, it's, the, it's the, the sense that right here is my healing. You know, right here is the person who, who can help me. But because of some ingrained attitude or reason... I'm saying this person, this is the last person I want to minister to me. And if we love our neighbor, if we love our neighbor, we'll receive the healing that God provides no matter who it comes from. Because God wants to heal us. And maybe it's going to take a night and an inn in a place where we don't want to be to get that healing. So how can we show true Christ-like love one toward another? We're going to talk about that. So let's uh, continue. One of the key components to the effective teaching ministry of Jesus was his use of parables. In an effort to both conceal and reveal truth, Jesus used parables that approached subjects from the cultural vantage points of his listeners. These parables were basically stories Jesus used to illustrate an attitude or a principle. The parable of the Good Samaritan is one such story Jesus used to answer two questions brought to him by a lawyer. The lawyer attempted to trap Jesus in some form or fashion. It is quite possible that he tried to lead Jesus to discredit himself by giving some unusual answer that would arouse the people against him. Jesus used this parable to impart a much-needed principle concerning loving our neighbor as ourselves. And it is, it, it is evident when we read his epistles that Paul cared deeply about those to whom he was writing. And as we read the letters he wrote to the churches in Ephesus, Philippi, and even in Thessalonica, we get a sense of deep concern and love that Paul carried for the saints in each of these churches. Along with the words of encouragement and correction, Paul included the very prayers that he regularly prayed over them. Here we are given a glimpse of one such prayer. And this is Thessalonians 3, 1 Thessalonians 3, 12-13. And the Lord make you to increase and abound in love one toward another and toward all men, even as we do toward you. To the end he may establish your hearts, unblameable in holiness before God, even our Father, at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. So Paul blessed them. Paul blessed them. You know, blessing, blessing one another will come from a heart of love. You know, whenever we desire the increase of our brothers and sisters, that's going to come from a place of, of love. Uh, and, you know, sometimes that's going to take some work. And we can work ourselves into a place of loving one another just by blessing one another. And if you find your prayer devoid of blessing, I think that that could be a sign that the Lord wants us to increase in our love. So we're going to uh, continue on. That Paul uh, continue on with this. Uh, Paul prayed that the church in Thessalonica would increase and abound in love, not only toward each other, but also to all humanity. And we're getting somewhere with this. I promise you. Paul echoed the teachings of Jesus when it came to the subject of love and he found it necessary to remind the church that this attribute should be something they possessed. So what does it mean to increase and abound in love? That's a good question, right? I would say it means to love it means love becomes greater in our lives. Simply that. To abound in love, it means love is springing springing up. It's like a, it's like a force, you know, it's like it motivates us. It's springing. It's, uh, you know, it's springing up in our hearts. 
and, uh, and it becomes greater and greater. It's not dormant. It doesn't, it doesn't die down. It's not something that dwindles. It's something that increases, and we have more of it. And then uh, the next question, what causes us to increase and abound in love? And we're going to get to that as well. These are just a few preliminaries uh, to where we're going. Uh, so by examining the gospel accounts, we discover that Jesus spoke often, and this is a blank that you, uh, for you to fill in here. By examining the gospel accounts, we discover that Jesus spoke often about the subject of love. And this is just a wonderful scripture here. In Jonathan 13, uh, John 13, there's no book of Jonathan. John, John 13, 34 through 35, my goodness. A new commandment I give unto you, that ye love one another, as I have loved you, that ye also love one another. By this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, if ye, love, if ye have love one to another. Jesus established a precedent for the disciples and eventually the early church to be often reminded of. He showed us how we should treat one another in the body of Christ. He show, say, say that with me. He showed us how we should treat one another in the body of Christ. So Jesus was our example. Jesus was our example of how we should love one another. Jesus, Jesus gave us many examples. He gave us an example of how we should be one another's servants. And, you know, we're, we're blessed with such, well, I don't, I don't want to embarrass anybody, but we are, we are blessed with such amazing, amazing servant leadership in our church. Amen. I mean, from pie contest to dunking at family Family day in the park. I mean, praise God. praise the Lord. Our our servant leadership in our church is second to none, and and we have that because because the Jesus showed us how we should love one another and how we should treat one another. And when we love one another, we will serve one another. So how we treat each other in the church is a distinct testimony to those outside the church. We never know uh, who may be watching us as we go through life. Our respect and love for one another is key to others recognizing our commitment to God and His ways. This passage of Scripture uncovers the way we are to love one another. We are to love one another as Christ has loved us. That's your next blank. We are to love one another as Christ has loved us. This unconditional love of Jesus is the true picture of what sacrificial love looks like. What is sacrificial love? Who wants to know what sacrificial love looks like? Amen. I want to know what sacrificial love looks like. I would immediately direct you, and this is where we're going to uh, deviate a little bit. I would immediately direct you uh, to the cross about sacrificial love. I would immediately direct you to Jesus and his walk with his disciples. I would immediately direct you to the words that he spoke to him. I would direct you to the way that he, the way that he ministered to the crowds that, 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 were, that surrounded him during those days of his, uh, of his earthly ministry. Uh, all the sacrificial love that he gave. But the ultimate, the ultimate symbol of sacrificial love being the cross. But the answer to this question and what causes us to abound in love, I would like to first make a couple observations about John and then move about uh, the chapter of uh, the book of John and then move from there to Romans 12. So there's a few interesting things about the gospel of John. Uh, so John's prologue traces the movement of one sent on a mission. So the prologue of John begins with talking about how one is sent on a mission, how Jesus is sent, all right? So, or, or how the gospel, well, if you trace it, the gospel is being sent. This is the beginning, how the word of truth is being sent into the world. This sin, sin terminology is interwoven throughout John's gospel. A sender, com, a sender commissions a messenger, right? So if you have a message, if you had a message uh, to deliver a hard message, you wrote a letter, and you gave it to me, then you commissioned me to fulfill a purpose on your behalf. And that's for me to take the message you gave me and give it to someone else. So I have a responsibility. 
So from a sent and sending perspective, we see John the Baptist being sent. We see Jesus being sent. We see the Holy Spirit being sent. We see the disciples being sent. And then we see also ourselves being sent. Because he sent us to make disciples. But the question is, for what purpose are we sent? For what purpose? So the, the way Jesus speaks about the new kind of love the disciples are to love one another with is placed in the context of a sign. So first of all, John says, okay, I, uh, the, the, chat, uh, the book of John gives us a sent and send term, uh, type of context. So he, he sent us for a purpose. But for what purpose? And John, or in the, in the chat, or the, the scripture that we read about the love that we're supposed to love one another with is important. And we, just, and we read that. Um, and so I want to read, I want to continue to read this. Um, it, it, so let me, let me backtrack a little bit. I'm getting excited and getting a little bit ahead of myself. Okay, so go back, rewind. Okay, so John, one, another distinctive of the book of John is that John did not use the word miracle very often. He used the word sign, right? Maybe you didn't know that, but he said by this sign, or, or he worked this sign, or, or, or what have you. It wasn't miracles, it was sign. And so, whenever we read this, by this shall all men know that you are my disciples. He's saying the way that you love one another is the sign. That's the sign. The way that you love one another. And if it's, and if it's a sign, and it's in the context of John, John's saying the way you love one another is miraculous. The way you love one another isn't normal. The, the way you love one another is godly. It's of the heavens. The way you love one another isn't of this earth. It's of the heavenlies. It's of the kingdom. Because you're a kingdom people. And it's not just a sign to you and your brethren. It's a sign to all that's around you. And when they see the sign of love that's, that's in your midst, they're going to know that they're going to know not only that the kingdom is around them or near them, but they're going to know that these signs that I'm telling you, they're going to also know that the signs you speak of are real. So if they know the sign of the, of the love that's in you is among you, then whenever you testify of the signs of the miracles that abound among you, they can't deny it. <clears throat> because the love of God is miraculous. So throughout John's uh, narrative, we, uh, I just want this to be ingrained in us. When a miracle occurs, it's referred to as a sign. So with these two thoughts in mind, we, we're sent, and the love of God is a sign. So uh, with those things, we, we, can, we can be, let, let's consider Romans 12. But uh, before I go there, I just really, I, I feel that whenever we take upon ourselves the knowledge that we're sent into a world to bear the sign of that love, man, the things, the things that God can do with that. The things that God... So if you want to say that whenever the children of Israel were being led out of Egypt and God split open the Red Sea, that was a sign. And He's saying, my love is equal to that. My love is equal to that sign. Because my love is able to deliver like that. That's the kind of power that is among us. That is the kind of power that is among us to tear down strongholds. Man. How powerful. So with that in mind, uh, let's move on to Romans 12. And as we do, if you're thankful for the love of God in your life, can we just give the Lord a hand clap of praise today? Amen. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Romans 12. And um, uh, I, 
my phone, I was going to read a KJ version, a KJV version on my phone, but my phone died. <laughs> That's what happens with technology. Um, I do have uh, my tablet here, but I'm, I'm going to read a, uh, a version here of Romans 12, 9 that's easy to understand. And uh, if you want to follow along with me in the KJV, uh, you're welcome to do that. Romans 12, 9. It begins, let love be without pretense. So just, I'm going to talk a little bit, uh, exposit this for a moment. Let love be without pretense. So in the Greek, the way that this is, the way that this begins, it's let love be without pretense is like a header. So if you've ever written a paper, the header describes what's to come. Let love be without pretense is saying uh, what is to follow this is what love is like. Love without pretense is what, this is what, love without pretense is like what's to follow. I don't know if I'm explaining that very well. But, um, so basically, if you're going to love without pretense, you're going to do these things. There we go. That's a good way to explain it. So, if you're going to love without pretense, hate what is evil. Be devoted to what is good. Show family affection to one another in brotherly love. Show the way to one another in respect. Be not negligent in eagerness. Be aglow with the Spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be steadfast in affliction. Be persistent in prayer. Share in the needs of the saints. Aspire to hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony among yourselves. Do not cherish proud thoughts, but associate with the lowly. Be not wise in your own estimation. Repay no evil for evil. Take into consideration what is noble in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take your own revenge, beloved, but give opportunity for God's wrath. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him to drink. For in so doing, you will heap coals of fire on his head. Do not be overcome by what is bad, but will overcome the bad with what is good. So if you are going to love with sincerity, this is... These are the things you must do. That's kind of a tall order. And we're going to talk just for a few minutes about a few of those. We still have about 30 minutes, so I'm going to go through a few of those. So, love without pretense, or love, let love be with sincerity. That means love authentically, without, preten without pretension, or love energetically. Hey, that, that can be pretty tough sometimes. Loving energetically. <laughs> Not lazily or out of mere dutiful obedience. You know, I'm trying to think of uh, examples and I'm, I don't want to get in trouble, so... Uh, not, you know, not loving energetically, loving energetically, I don't know, but... Uh, you know, some... You see me struggling, praise God. Okay, so I'll try to give you a personal example right now. So I, I just recently had a birthday, right? And, yeah, thank you, Brother Gene. So I was, uh, I, thank you, I love you too, Pastor. I was, uh, I was at my birthday dinner, and they were singing happy birthday, and I was, str I was struggling to be happy about turning, turning, the, turning 31, and uh, I know. I know. Okay, it's, it's not that old. I'm not that old. I get it. I get it. But I'm just trying to give you an example. I'm just trying to give you an example of trying to love uh, the, trying to love the birthday energetically. Because I was, I was not very energetic at the moment. <laughs> and I'm sitting there and I'm kind of like, you know, and I'm like, you know what? Everyone's, everyone's 
energetic about this. I need to be a little bit more energetic about this. I appreciate this, you know. And, uh, you know, and that's what love is like, you know. You realize, okay, I should show a little bit more energy right now, you know. And sometimes you have to push yourself. So if you're going to love sincerity, you're going you're gonna to make that step. And you're going to say, okay, even though this is kind of tough, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to love with some energy. <laughs> All right. Maybe I kept myself out of trouble. I don't know. And then earlier, as I was talking about uh, uh, the, the, two, the two things I, I asked you to remember about being sent, um, the, the word here for love without pretense, the Greek word for, the lo- for love here is agape. And, uh, it, it, and so far, it's only been used of the divine love of God. And some commentators are, are confused here because they don't understand how it's being used in connection to human love. And they say, well, this is where, human, where, where they're picking, up, picking it up as a, um, as a tradition uh, and starting a tradition to use it for human love. And I said, you know, I just don't really think they're getting it that the... That, the, the total transformation of Christ in somebody's life changes the type of love that we uh, are able to love with. And so it's no longer just uh, a human love, but it's, it's, a, it's a godly love. It's a love that's given by the Spirit, and it becomes agape love. And it's a lot deeper. So it's supernatural. And, uh, and then pretense, love without pretense, means literally without hypocrisy. So it's genuine and sincere. So was I genuine when I said I need to I need to uh, I need to love a little bit more enthusiastically or energetically at my birthday? No, I wasn't being hypo- uh, uh, a hypocrite. No, because I I was thankful for the birthday song and and for and for the uh, and for the love in the room, you know. And uh, I realized that I should you know try to uh, try to respond to that. So love, love is without pretense. It's without hypocrisy. So uh, the next thing, showing the way to one another in respect. So I was reading, well, um, so esteem, esteem more highly. That's what this means. Give pride of place to one another. Uh, anybody ever, so this happened to me uh, this morning actually. Anybody ever get into one of those awkward situations where you're at the door and you're like, you go, oh no, you go, oh, you go, no, oh no, you go, you you know, <laughs> yeah. you know, um, so you're, you're, you're esteeming one another more highly. You know, that's a good thing. You know, if it's coming from the heart, that's a good thing. Um, but I actually was, uh, I was reading a, a book and uh, on a more serious note, and this was some time ago, about the using uh, the, the implementation of the spiritual gifts. And the brother was like, um, you know, sometimes... You know, you just gotta, you just gotta walk up. I don't, I don't know if this was a more tender, if this was a more tender way of, of saying it back then. Or I hope I'm not gonna get myself in trouble again on this one. But uh, I don't. This was probably more tender, a more tender way to say it 30 years ago. But he said, "Yeah, sometimes you just gotta walk up and say you really missed it this time on that one, brother." You know, and I was like, "Man, if someone said that to me, I'd be crushed." You know, <laughs> so. We, you know, showing the way to one another in respect, we can help each other respectfully, you know, without crushing someone. You know, love, love doesn't crush somebody. You know, love respects each other. You know, love encourages one another. Love lifts each other up. So, you know, it, love isn't a love that is without pretense or a love that is sincere uh, isn't hateful, <laughs> It's not sarcastic. It doesn't. It love without love with sincerity isn't isn't love with bitterness. You know, I mean, it's it's love that esteems one another. All right. Uh, so just going through some of these. Uh, be not negligent in eagerness. Hmm. What does that mean? Well, this goes back to the uh, whole energy thing. This is with unflagging energy. Uh, has a little bit different kind of. Uh, connotation uh, this, this describes a person showing hesitation um, the well I'm not going to read I'm 
me. I could say that, but uh, describes a per- well. I I have in my notes here um, the original words, and you're not interested in hearing. I geeked out on some of this stuff. Okay, I I geeked out on some of this stuff. So I'm just <laughs> sorry. Sorry about that. So it describes a person showing hesitation through weariness or sloth or fear or bashfulness or reserve. And i got to say, I've been there before. I've had flagging energy because, and I've been hesitant because of weariness before. I've had hesitation because of fear and bashfulness before and reserve. Especially, especially in hospital settings. When I, when I knew that I had to go into a room where someone was yelling and screaming and throwing things, and I had to go in as crisis management, you know, I had hesitation. But my love, my love had to say, okay, do I love this staff enough? Or do I love this person enough to try to bring the peace of God into this room? You know, that's, that's, where, that's where the sincerity of love comes in. And if I'm going to love with sincerity, am I willing to push past some of these things? Am I willing to push past my hesitation? Am I willing to push past my push past my fear or my slothfulness or my weariness? The next one, rejoice with those who rejoice or let hope keep you joyful. Have you ever seen someone else's hope kind of put joy in your heart? Man. Sorry. I was just thinking about my grandpa. When I when I think about my grandpa being 90 some years old and shuffling around the church and worshiping God with his whole heart that's what put joy in my heart because I saw his hope and man that joy lives on today and my hope is that my joy my hope will put joy in other people's hearts so when we rejoice, love, love, love will rejoice in the hope of others. Amen. Sorry about that. The testimony of Grandpa, the testimony of our elders really, really brings it on me. <laughs> Amen. So um, I'm running out of time here, so I do, I do want to uh, hit two Two major, two major things. Um, number, uh, the, first, the first thing I want to hit here is bless those who persecute you. Bless and curse not. So this idea of blessing. Um, in the Old Testament, the priests would call on the name of Yahweh. Um, and they would pray a priestly blessing upon, um, upon uh, individuals. So may the, um, you know, so they would, you know, just pray for the face of God to shine upon them. And, um, you know, I, I'm, I'm not, I can't quote it right off the top of my head right now. But, um, you know, likewise, whenever we pray blessing on people, we call in the name of Jesus. Um, and we say in Jesus' name, you know, please, you, Lord, give this person strength or give this person hope. And that's what it means to bless those who persecute us. You know, we pray for their good. We pray for their, for their blessing and for their increase and not for their destruction. And so that's going to be important here in a second for where I'm going. And then the next thing is um, ta- uh, the way the scripture talks about um, heaping coals of fire upon another person's head. And uh, I don't want to, what I want to point out is that if love is sincere, you're going to forgive. Because that's what the scripture is about. It's about letting the repentance and forgiveness process play out. And heaping coals of fire is a proverbial, is a proverbial process. And it, and it points back to um, a burning guilt in a person's mind. That you do such goodness and kindness to the person that they're overcome with guilt and it leads to repentance. It's not that God consumes them with wrath. It's that because of your kindness to them that they become so overcome in their mind with guilt because of your kindness that it leads them to repentance. So, 
and and this spans from um, a, from from the pro, from the time of Proverbs. So I'm not I don't have the time to get into that now, be, uh, but I I do want to say that if love is sincere, it says that you will bless those who curse you, and it says that you will forgive those who repent. So I want to talk for a second about forgiveness and repentance. Rabbinic tradition holds the gift of repentance and its attainment as being revealed to Moses on Mount Sinai during the golden calf incident. In Exodus 34, 5 through 7, we, we read this. And the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. And the Lord passed by before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, and that will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children, and upon the children's children, and to the third and to the fourth generation. So, in order to receive forgiveness when one was seeking, when, when one was repenting in the Jewish tradition, they were to read these 13 attributes of God's mercy in a prayer service to attain forgiveness at, at, a, at the Day of Atonement, while invoking Exodus 34.10 that says, Behold, I make a covenant. According to Jewish tradition, when one sins, it damages both the physical and the spiritual. Forgiveness waives the physical debt. So if I stole from you and I came to repent, I would repay. And then forgiveness would waive the physical debt I owed you. And, but the deeper, the deeper aspect of my sin is that there was a spiritual need that was left unmet. This deeper need could only be met at the Day of Atonement, but only for those sins that were committed against God. If a sin was committed against another person, that person could withhold forgiveness. How terrible would that be to have sinned against somebody and then that person to withhold forgiveness from you? kind of seems like you'd be trapped. So that guilty person's sin could not be atoned, even if they were repenting. The person who was sinned against had to be appeased before they were expected to forgive. For this reason, people who withheld forgiveness were seen as incredibly cruel, especially if appeasement had been made. If one asked to be forgiven three times, one was expected to forgive. If one did not, they were seen in even worse light. So, the reason I'm telling you this is to let you in on the fact that at Calvary, Jesus became the one who was sinned against in the place of every victim and simultaneously became the one who offered himself as the appeasement for every individual who required a guilt offering. He made a way for the sinner to find grace and he made a way for the one sinned against to be appeased. However, do not think the covenant God made in Exodus is no longer in effect because you can still be cruel and refuse to forgive someone even though Jesus has already provided atonement for the offender. You can still be cruel and withhold your forgiveness. But little did you know, your target of unforgiveness isn't the man or woman who sinned against you anymore. It's Jesus. It's Jesus. He's the one standing there as the, as the one who's the appeasement. I don't know if you remember the story of Joseph, Joseph, but he was put in a pit, went through a whole bunch of stuff, ended up in Egypt. His brothers came to him, asked his forgiveness three times. There's no biblical evidence that Joseph forgave him. And guess what? The sins of the fathers visited Israel, they were trapped in Egypt for 400 years because Joseph didn't forgive. And then there had to be the Passover, which looked forward to the cross because there had to be justice for the sin. You know, God, did not, God is not going to allow sin to, to happen in your life and there not be justice. God, God's justice demands justice. But the cruelty of unforgiveness will result in your sins being visited upon your children to the fourth generation. 
Because Jesus said, if you refuse to forgive, then neither can your sins be forgiven. Jesus suffered the cruelty of the cross to provide grace and atonement to all people. But don't let the grace of God that he gave to your neighbor cause you to stumble. And if you want, if you want to know how to forgive, if you want to know, then receive the, receive the sacrifice of, of Christ as your appeasement. When you're saying, how do I forgive? I, just stop for a second and imagine the cruelty of the cross that Jesus endured for your sake because He wouldn't let the sin that came against you to stand. He saw your injustice and He knew that He couldn't let that stand. And so when you're struggling with how do I forgive, you look at the appeasement that He made at the cross and you see it and you say, Lord, I receive that. I receive the cruelty of the just man that you are, that you didn't deserve into my life. And if today you're seeking repentance, there's grace for you. Jesus can forgive you today because He gave Himself on a cross. This is... Love, sacrificial love. This is sacrificial love. And this is the direction love must take in a believer's life. The direction the love must take in a believer's life is cross-bearing. It's to the hill of Calvary. I once heard a story, and um, I'm almost done. I'm going to probably run it to the time, almost time limit here, but um, I heard a story of a, of an individual who was whose dad was a drunk, and uh, this individual his his dad beat him mercilessly as a kid. And this is a story about repentance and forgiveness. His dad beat him mercilessly as a kid, and he was terrified that he was going to do the same to his child. He came to an altar seeking to forgive his father. And he found forgiveness at that altar. He came home that night. His son said, Dad, what were you doing in my room? He said, I wasn't in your room, son. He said, yeah, you were. You were standing over my bed looking at me. You said you were going to get me. And then as soon as you said it, you turned around and you walked out my door. And as far as his dad could surmise, there was a spirit that had been coming against his family that wanted to have control of his family, but forgiveness broke it. Upon the generation, the third and fourth generation, and it was gone because that man was able to receive the atonement of Christ. Forgiveness can break chains today if we'll receive the love for us And we'll give our love to God. And I almost don't have time to go into what I really, into the next part of this. So so maybe I can just wrap it up quickly. Um, I'm not going to be able to uh, finish your your fill in the blanks here. But Romans 12 and 14 says, Bless them which persecute you. Bless and curse not. And I just want to tell you, does anybody remember how many disciples um, Jesus had? This isn't a trick question. Twelve. Twelve disciples. Jesus had twelve disciples. But we see in John 17, he says these, he's, he says these words. And this is eternal life. He's praying for his disciples. That they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent, And I have glorified thee on the earth. I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. And now, O Father, glorify thou me with thine own self with the glory which I had with thee before the world. I have manifested thy name unto the men which thou gavest me. And skip down. Now they have known that all things whatsoever thou hast given me are of thee. For I have given unto them the words which thou gavest me. Them. They, John 12, while I was with them in the world, I kept them in thy name. 
Those that thou gavest me I have kept, and none of them is lost but the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. So he's been praying all this time. They, them, they, them. And he's saying only one is lost. Only one sheep is, is, is out of the fold. But he's still referencing they and them. He's still referencing Judas as a part. And why do I say that? Because in John 6, 70, Jesus answered them, Have not I chosen you twelve, and one of you is a devil? Jesus chose all twelve of them. And chose to love all twelve of them, even though one of them was a devil. Talk about sacrificial love. And even in the midst of his deceit, even in the midst of his betrayal, John seventeen fifteen. I pray not that thou shouldest take them out of the world, but thou shouldest keep them from the evil. Seventeen twenty four. Father, I will that they also whom thou hast given me be with me where I am. None, Lord, he doesn't want any to perish. So he blesses Judas, who persecutes him. And today, today. If you're a spiritual Judas who's looking for a tree, the wrong tree, I point you to the tree that Jesus died on. Because that's where the sacrificial love is at. You're still apart today. You're not, you're still apart today. Hallelujah. Amen. I feel the Lord here. Can we just stand? Amen. I. I might have had a little bit too much, but I pray that I gave you here at the end what the Lord told me to give you. The Lord wants us not only to love beyond limits, but He wants us to receive His love that's beyond limits today. Amen. I don't know if we have felt like... I don't know if... Where we're at today, but the Lord knows where we are. He knows the word that we needed to hear today. And I pray that if, you, if the Lord has spoken to you today, if we could just lift our hands right now, if we could just lift our voice. Oh, Jesus, Lord, in you is perfect love. In you, Jesus, is love God.